But uh, yeah, there's yeah, there's so much to discover, to learn from, um, to be encouraged by um, in these chapters in Deuteronomy. Um, and as we have seen, as we as we've gone through Deuteronomy um, uh, to date as well. So uh, let's pray as we get into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we we pray that you would help us with your word, um, help us to to understand it. To receive it, we pray that you would uh, soften our hearts, that they are changed by your word, um, that we would be uh, encouraged and be drawn to um, to praise you as we hear of your 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 grace, your patience, your love for your people. We pray uh, that you would help us to apply it to our lives, that as you call us to uh, follow you, to love you and to serve you and to fear you, uh, that you would uh, help us to know what that looks like. Uh, and we pray that you would, um, yeah, that you would work uh, in our hearts to shape us to be uh, like Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I wonder if uh, if you've ever experienced uh, being confronted with your own insufficiency, with your own uh, lack of ability. Um, to reach the point where you have uh, nothing left, no, no ideas, no thoughts, nothing that you can turn to say, I, I know what I'm doing here, I've got this. If, have you ever been in that situation where you've felt uh, just utterly helpless? It can be uh, quite a confronting uh, experience to reach the very bottom of your own cap- capability and to realise the, the limits of your um, identity as a, as a creature, um, and to be confronted with that. Um, as, as new expectant parents, Millie and I are starting to think more about uh, what the initial seasons of parenthood might require of us, as I'm sure many of you have gone through, and we're starting to get a taste of, of what I expect will be many more experience of just, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I am, I'm completely out of my depth. And that's just really, uh, really just a shadow um, of of some experience that you might have had or, or, or when we're con- confronted with our own, um, yeah, insufficiency. Maybe you felt this way at work or at school with your own family. Uh, you might have been confronted with it by someone else and we, particularly we're probably good at it in our Australian culture. We tend to have a way of enjoying pointing out um, when someone else has, has failed or not lived up to something that they um, have said they would do. In in today's chapters, the people of God, the Israelites, come face to face with their own uh, insufficiency, even more the deep realities of their sin and rebellion from God. We'll hear uh, about just how serious their condition is before God, but also read about what God has done and how he will respond, how he has reached out with might, power and grace and we'll hear about how God will treat his people in the future. And just to remind about where we are in the history of God's uh, people, so Moses has Israel standing on the eastern side uh, of the Jordan River, about to go into the land that God has been promising um, to take them. And he's preparing them for life in the land. Uh, Moses will uh, not follow them into the promised land, he will not be with them, he will not be their leader anymore. Uh, and we're still in his second sermon in this book of Deuteronomy, and will be for some time. 
You can remember this, this sermon started with the Ten Commandments and has continued uh, to teach on what it looks like for God's people to be in covenant relationship with him. And in this part um, of his sermon, we're going through a bit of a transition and we're, and we're reaching somewhat of a climax. Uh, these chapters are the last of Moses' somewhat foundational exhortations to the Israelites about what covenant relationship with God looks like. And after these chapters, you'll notice we get into some more specific stipulations of how they're to live in the promised land. Chapters on tithing, what the Sabbath should look like, uh, clean foods that they're, they're able to eat and so on. Uh, but, we're, but we're reaching the climax of, of really Moses' exhortation to, um, for the people to remember the Lord, to live as, as his people. And we'll see in these chapters that covenant relationship with God um, has three things. It's, it's one of sheer grace, holy requirements, and rich blessing. In chapter 9 through to verse 11 of chapter 10, uh, we'll read about God's grace for his people. In chapter 10, verse 12 through chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 7, we'll hear of what God requires of his people. Uh, and verse 8 through 32 of chapter 11, we'll hear of what God will do for his people. So God's grace for his people. Uh, if you're thinking that these themes sound familiar, well, they are. And they're, they're somewhat of a cycle through the book of Deuteronomy. We've seen... Um, a repetition of sorts of these themes, constant reminders to, to remember the Lord, reminders to follow him, to love him, reminders of God's blessings and his judgment and the way that these things have looked uh, in the lead up to this point. The call to remember uh, is emphasised throughout the book. These cycles of uh, remember the Lord, keep his commandments, and you will receive blessing continue. And so it's no surprise that as we move through this transition point in Moses' sermon that we are reminded of them once again. And before we get into um, chapter 9, there is certainly a logical flow uh, from chapter 8 that is worth just examining and being reminded of. Uh, we read in chapter 8, um, Moses reminded the people uh, the way in which God had disciplined them in the wilderness. Yes, they had experienced suffering, um, being led through the great and terrifying wilderness there in verse 15. Through thirsty ground with no water, with its fiery serpents uh, and scorpions. Yet Moses is clear that these things were not uh, meaningless. They were ways that God disciplined them, preparing them to be his people. And as we move into chapter 9... It's made clear that this discipline uh, was for good reason, as the Israelites are reminded of the, rea of the reality of their insufficiency and rebellion, and ultimately the, rea the reality of God's grace in response. So God's grace for his people. In chapters 9 and into chapter 10, Moses reminds them about what happened at Mount Horeb. God disciplines his people because they need it. They really need discipline and this shows that what God is is doing with them is sheer grace. Covenant relationship with God is one of sheer grace. The Israelites attempted at, at this point as they prepare to go into the land to believe that God is giving it to them because of how good they are. If the true and living God of all nations chose them then 
surely they might think at least on some level it must be because they're superior to all the nations around them. But Moses is clear, that's not the case at all. In uh, verses 1 to 6, he tells them twice, God is not giving you this land because of your righteousness. Instead, the land is God's grace to them. And the language of giving uh, or of a gift is all over these chapters. Whenever Moses talks about the land, he says it is the land the Lord your God is giving to you. The land is a gift, God's grace to them. They haven't earned it. In fact, it's completely undeserved. Because if there's one thing that Israel has indisputably proved in their 40-year journey is that they are a stiff-necked, rebellious, sinful people. And that, un- that unrighteousness and rebellion is something that they can't forget when they enter the land. If they forget that they are by nature unrighteous, then they'll forget God's grace in response. And as evidence to help them remember their unrighteousness, Moses tells the story of what happened at Horeb. We've seen in earlier chapters um, uh, different extracts of this story. Um, We've seen how God made his covenant with Israel at Horeb. It's a familiar story to us, and it was a familiar story for the Israelites, uh, and yet they are confronted here again with that story, just to make sure they remember. God spoke to them from fire and cloud and darkness and gave them the Ten Commandments. And Israel were rightly terrified and asked if Moses could step in and act as a mediator on their behalf. He would go up onto Horeb where God would give him the law. Filling out the Ten Commandments and whatever God told Moses, he would tell the people and they would do. It's a great response. God approves. But as Moses goes up on the mountain, right after they've received the spoken Ten Commandments, uh, Israel begin to break them. They ask Aaron... Moses' brother, to make them an idol. And while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God in the fire and cloud which they can still see, Israel starts to worship a golden calf as if it was God. It's taken them, remember, just a few days from seeing and hearing God to forsaking him for an idol. This is utter and complete failing and forsaking of God. We've talked about the covenant uh, as being like a marriage between God and Israel. This is like saying your wedding vows and then ducking out of the church uh, to visit a prostitute before you come back to sign the register. That's what Israel have done to God from the first day uh, of their marriage. And God is so angry, uh, and rightfully so. He has the right to be angry. He's prepared to do to them the same thing that he's going to do to all the other unrighteous nations. We can read in verse Uh, 7 and 8 of chapter 9. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. And the only thing that saves Israel is that Moses steps in to plead for them. He smashes the stone tablets. He lays down and prays for them for 40 days. 40 days. He fasts as a sign of his deep anguish. He begs God to not give them what they deserve. And we can notice here the gravity of Moses' response. 
Israel's sin, though expressed as just one uh, discreet act of worshipping a golden calf, an idol, does not mean that they've just broken 10% of God's law. It doesn't mean that they have still obeyed God, you know, most of the time or with most things or something like that. To go back to the wedding day analogy, that act of gross infidelity might just be one temporally small act, but it signifies complete unfaithfulness and rejection. Moses refers to all the sin you have committed in verse 18. The tablets are broken. Israel have forsaken their God, their redeemer and rescuer. Complete failing. But God shows them grace. He doesn't destroy them. But that doesn't change Israel's heart. Place after place, as we read, all through their wandering, they keep sinning and grumbling and complaining so that Moses can say about them uh, in verse 24, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. But Moses pleads with God again on the basis of, of what? On the basis of pragmatics, of a common sense, uh, on the basis of Moses or Israel standing before them? No, on the basis of a promise, a promise that God has made. A promise that God made to his servant Abraham. And it's only because God remembers those promises instead of their sin that Israel is saved. God listens to Moses gives them a new, st- new set of stone tablets and leads Israel through the wilderness to give them the land he promised them. Moses' intercession turns away God's anger from Israel. So we see it's, it's, it's made clear. It's made clear what Israel's state is before God and it's made clear that for God to bring them into covenant relation, bring them into covenant relationship with him is one of a sheer act of grace. Moses wants, requires, pleads with them to remember that grace when they enter the land. And part of that grace is God's patience um, in rewriting the stone tablets. And so we move into uh, what God requires of his people. Uh, Verse 10 of chapter 12 through to verse 7 of chapter 11. This time, as God rewrites uh, the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets, uh, he commands the people to build an ark of wood to place them in. The tablets will not be broken again. God's law is here to stay. And so, uh, yeah, we move into this second point. Covenant relationship with God is one of holy requirements. So what does God require of his people? What does it look like to live in the light of his grace that we've read about? That's what the rest of chapter 10 and the first seven verses of chapter 11 are about. In verse 12 of chapter 10, Moses turns to the Israelites and tells them what it will look like to live in the land in light of God's grace. We uh, Read with me in chapter, chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. What does God require? This question uh, is at the heart of mankind searching across the millennia. 
And it's no small question. We've attempted to answer this through, through religion, through science, through ethics, through inward reflection, through self-discovery, all searching and wanting to know what ultimately are we to do as creatures of this earth. What does God require? If you're in the area around Israel at this time, at the time of Moses' sermon, you, you might hear it referred to as the ancient Near East, you've, you've probably been confronted with many attempts to answer this question. For the cultures and nations and people groups around the Israelites, they answer this question with chaotic temple practices of human and animal sacrifice, always as an attempt to turn a God's favour toward them or satisfy a particular God. Israel would have been very familiar with this. They were exposed to this. They were tempted by this. Uh, In the peoples they were encountering uh, through their journeying and back in Egypt as well, these these practices were cruel, they were oppressive, they were vulgar, they were uh, chaotic. But here again, what Israel's God requires of them. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But... To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. What a different register this sits in now. How refreshing and full of grace is it to hear even the requirements that God gives his people. God's grace uh, creates a particular relationship with him and it's one that has requirements. Um, There's no getting uh, past that or minimising that because to live as God's covenant people is to live as those in the image of their creator. And these requirements are not disjointed or separate but are uh, different ways of describing the one beautiful life that God calls his covenant people to. So what does this beautiful life involve? We'll look at each of those um, elements separately. It involves fear. It involves a healthy respect for God's power, knowing that we're absolutely safe and protected if we're with him, but knowing knowing what he will do if we reject him. Israel's seen what he will do to their enemies. Um, They've seen what he will do um, to their own who, who rebel against him. If they run away, they should be afraid. But if they cling to him, they'll be absolutely safe. So fear, it involves walking in his ways, following the path that God lays out in his word that tells his people how to live, in the commandments and statutes that he given to them. His people are to follow that path, day after day in every part of their lives. It involves loving God with all their heart and all their soul, What an amazing God that he would give his people the privilege of loving him. Uh, We saw that in chapter 6. The appropriate way to respond to being rescued by God is to love him. He is gracious and good to us. Uh, And and the appropriate way is to respond with an all-consuming, all-pervasive love that captures all of our, uh, our passion and all of our faculties, being fully committed to him in response to his commitment to us. And that love shows itself by serving him and keeping his commandments, as it's uh, listed there in verse 12 and 13 as well. 
these laws, these, these requirements are just, uh, aren't just a set of rules and restrictions to fulfil. They don't give the minimum standard or show us loopholes to minimise our commitment and get on with life. Their purpose is to show us what God loves and to shape what we love so that we can love like God loves. They're here to help us see what being godly should look like, what it looks like to live as his people. How might you uh, apply these points to your life? Uh, To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him, to keep his commandments. What does it look like for you to do these things? Well, Moses has done some of the work for us here. He actually does apply these points and it's interesting where he takes this. He goes straight to the very heart of God's rescuing of Israel, his redemptive work. He gives them an example of what God loves at the end of chapter 10 uh, in verses 18 and 19. God loves the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. He has a particular concern for people who are weak, for people who are vulnerable. After all, that's why he's loved Israel. They were weak and vulnerable. And so if Israel starts to love like God loves, they'll have the same particular concern for the weak and vulnerable too. When you look around you in your, in your neighbourhood, your workplace, extended family, right here uh, in our church, who are the fatherless? Who are the widows? Who are the sojourners? We're to love these people as God has loved you, as God has loved us. So covenant relationship with God is one of sheer grace and holy requirements, and finally it is one of rich blessing. As we move now into our final section uh, from verses 8 to 32 of chapter 11 and see what God will do for his people. And we see in verses 8 and verses, uh, verses eight and 9 and verses 13 to 17 there in chapter 11 that the ways in which God is calling his people to live are not inconsequential. If they live rightly in light of the grace that God has shown them, they'll be blessed. He's given them the land, he's put aside his anger, he's shown them grace. If they live in light of that, they'll have rest from their enemies. They'll have peace, they'll have prosperity. After all, these are not uh, abstract or detached requirements. They are the very ways that God has created his people to live in his image. If Israel will live in light of God's grace, responding with loving obedience, then God promises that their lives will be blessed in the promised land. They will live long lives with great peace, with great prosperity. But if they forget God's grace, if they follow other gods or claim that they're self-sufficient on their own, then God promises that their time in the land will come to a quick and disastrous end. And so at the end of chapter 11, in verse 26, Moses sets a choice before the people. See there in... uh, in verse 26 of chapter 11, verse 26 to 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. They can choose to live in light of grace, 
to follow God's commandments and be blessed, or they can forget grace. They can turn aside to self-sufficiency and idolatry, uh, puffing themselves up and, and be cursed. And so we see that there are ongoing consequences if Israel choose to turn away from God again. You would expect from uh, the ways that Moses has reminded his people of, of, of who they are, who they were, um, of the way that God has acted, uh, of the mighty deeds that they have seen, the way that they have seen God pour out uh, his judgment on the people around them and on their own that have rebelled against him, um, that it wouldn't really be a hard choice, would it? At this point in the, story, in the story, we're so hopeful for Israel, aren't we? We're anticipating their eventual journey into the promised land. Uh, we're eager to see that they live out the life that God calls them to live in covenant relationship with him. But we know what Israel ultimately chose. They didn't choose blessing. The, the rest of the Old Testament tells that story. They forgot grace. Moses was right, they were a stubborn, stiff-necked people, and so Israel's history is filled with the curse of disobedience. They continue to, they continue to be brought face-to-face with their insufficiency, their incapability, their sin. Even though Moses stepped in to intercede for them on the mountain, uh, he couldn't permanently turn God's anger away. He fasted, he prayed for God to turn his anger away, but God's judgment was only held back temporarily. Israel's sin wasn't dealt with in any permanent sense. They keep sinning and eventually they fall under the curse that their sin deserves. Moses, uh, yeah, for all his pleading, for all his fasting, for all his praying, he couldn't take away the punishment for their sin and he couldn't change their hearts. So what hope is there? What hope is there Uh, For us, born outside the promise given to Abraham and his descendants that Moses uses as the basis for his appeal to God. Yet still born under, under Adam, under the curse of sin and death, will we see and experience the blessings of covenant relationship with God? Or will we see the curse of our rejection of God and our idolatry? Thankfully, we know of a better mediator, a truer and better Uh, Moses. Jesus is that truer and better mediator. He doesn't only mediate by prayer and fasting, he actually takes the curse that comes for, uh, for breaking the law on himself. He steps into the breach for us. So when Jesus dies, God's wrath, his judgment for our sin is fully satisfied. And he chose blessing um, always, he, in, in terms of the way that he lived. He feared the Lord. He walked in all his ways. He loved him. He served him and kept his father's commands. He chose blessing and then took the curse. Galatians chapter 3 verse, verse 13 reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so all that remains now that the curse is taken uh, is blessing. But where, where is our blessing? To whom has it come? When will it come? Is it conditional? Does it involve paddocks or crops or, or rain? Well, 
in a way. We read in Ephesians that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Jesus offers us a blessing far more secure than it ever was uh, for Israel, not just a patch of land, but full adoption into his family, redemption, uh, full forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. And these blessings are true and applied for all who are in Christ, for all who follow him. And so Jesus offers us a choice as well. Will we continue to turn uh, our back on him as the one true God, saviour of the world, creator and sustainer of all things? Uh, When we're faced with our own failings, our own sin, will we be drawn further into ourselves uh, or will we lift our eyes to Jesus to take up our cross and to follow him? Fearing the Lord, walking in all his ways, loving him, serving him with all our heart and with all our soul, knowing that in him we have already received every spiritual blessing because of his work. We have been made a new creation and are being formed into the very likeness of him so that one day we will join with the multitude around the throne worshipping our holy God. But for now we might sing uh, as the old hymn says, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Over all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. What sheer grace we find in Jesus, what holy requirements he has already met for us, and what rich blessing we have in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good God, a God who loves us, a God who desires uh, to bless us. We give you thanks that you are preparing us to live in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you that you promise to glorify us by making us more like Jesus. We confess that we are, we are far from that now. We are quick to forget your grace. We are stiff-necked. We are rebellious. We are uh, people who, without Christ, we, we deserve your judgment. But we praise you because you have given us yourself. You have given us Christ to step in and take the curse for us. We thank you that you have uh, perfectly loved us. We thank you that Christ perfectly loved you and obeyed you and shares the blessing with us. Father, we pray that you would help us to always remember and to live in the grace that you have shown us in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.